Hi, this is Tom Hayes from Hedge Fund Tips, and welcome to Videocast Episode 14 and Podcast Episode 4. This is January 24th, 2020, and this week we're going to kick it off on Monday at 3.20 p.m. Just got the timing. I will be on the final round with Jennifer Rogers and Miles Udland, so tune in at yahoofinance.com or finance.yahoo.com at 3.20 on Monday if you're around. And also on Friday, I will be on between 2 to 3 p.m., exact times to come as we get closer. Uh, So please tune in if you're around for that. Next up, the subject du jour, which is the coronavirus and the impact that it could have on the stock market. Here's an article on MarketWatch just put out tonight, actually uh, about an hour ago, that talked about the stock market reaction to the last, uh, uh, let's call it a six um, uh, dozen or so outbreaks so you had the, well, HIV, that's, that doesn't seem uh, applicable here, but uh, the S&P was down uh, uh, 20 basis points in six months and 10% in 12 months. It's probably not close. Pneumonic plague, September 1994, six months later, the S&P was up 8.2%. 12 months, it was up 26%. SARS, which is much more uh, appropriate for what we're dealing with now, April 2003. Six months later, the S&P was up 14.5%. 12 months, it was up 20%. So it was actually bullish. Uh, I mean, coincidentally, not causally. Uh, Avian flu, June 2006. In six months, it was up, S&P was up 11%. 12 months, it was up 18%. Danube fever in 2006, again, up 6% and 14% in the 6 and 12 month time frames. Swine flu, April 2009, up 18%, up 35%. Cholera, up 14%, up 5%. MERS, up 10%, up 17%. Uh, Ebola, up 5%, up 10%. That was in 2014. And Zika, up 12% and up 17% in the six month and 12 month periods. So on balance, this, this shouldn't be negative. Of course, there's always the outlier, but you have to play the probabilistic um, statistics and uh, the odds are that uh, this will get under control sooner than later. I think Regeneron's in the works on something. I saw Gilead and another company, if it, uh, if it becomes more pronounced. But more or less, uh, as it seems right now, for the majority of people who are, you know, 20 to 60, it's like having a cold or flu, uh, not the end of the world. It's the people that already have pre-existing conditions or very elderly or uh, very, very young that have the much higher risk of of having a, a problematic time with it. Um, here, they went into the uh, lower time frames which we kind of talk about on this podcast which and and video cast which we do weekly the average return in one month for all these things averaged was up 44 basis points or just under a half a percent three months out uh, the average was up three percent and six months the average was up eight percent for all of them wins 
loses and draws. And then you can see this chart if you're on the video cast from 1980 all the way to the recent epidemics uh, or um, perceived epidemics and how things fared after uh, they played out. So on balance, it's, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it's bullish, but uh, if you give it a, you know, some time to play out, it's not as bad as, as feared is really the moral of this article. And definitely, who's the author here? Uh, Mark to Cambrai. I'll post it on tomorrow morning's Saturday Reads, or you can just Google it at Market Watch. Uh, great article there. Okay, on to the substance of this week, our core article on stock market commentary, three pieces to the 2020 earnings puzzle, and sentiment results. So the case I laid out here was that uh, right now we're at 18.6 uh, times forward earnings for the S&P 500 on $177 and change and where the S&P closed as of yesterday. So that's, you know, that's a healthy multiple. It's certainly above the 10-year average in the 16s. So what do we need? We're going to need some more earnings power to support the multiple expansion. And there are three factors that could help us get there. First, uh, first and foremost, that not a lot of people are paying attention to is the potentiality of a weaker U.S. dollar year on year. And we'll explain how that plays out in just a moment. Second is increased confidence and guidance from CEOs and CFOs now that phase one is signed. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. There's one sector that this is really starting to happen, and no one will guess what it is until I tell you. I can assure you, especially after this week, you're going to say, no way is guidance going up in that sector, but you're going to be surprised. And third, uh, Boeing gets a positive surprise after kitchen sinking expectations this week. This is interesting and timely because um, yesterday they came out or before I did this, uh, I guess it was, no, so yesterday was Thursday. So Wednesday, Boeing came out with a kitchen sink. Basically, you know, you're, you're not going to see this plane for a while. And uh, end of the world type, uh, everything could go wrong and not the thing you wanted to hear. And I said, well, if that changes, now that they've kitchen synced it and made expectations so low, uh, and we'll, we'll discuss the impact of how much earnings power that means to the S&P 500, it's really mind-boggling. Um, but today, we already saw where the FAA came out and said, we like what we're seeing from Boeing, and boom, the stock just took off in a weak market. I think it closed up 2 or 3% after being down on the day. It just completely did an about-face. So very exciting on that front. Now, uh, yes, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about in this uh, related to this article is the most important set of data or one of the most important bits of data I look at every month is the Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey results, which came out earlier this week. And a couple of things. Number one, you know, obviously we've had a monster run off the uh, melt up off the September, August, September lows. And all the short term indicators have obviously gotten overbought. We've discussed that in the last couple of weeks. Um, but this survey result, Bank of America says we're not yet at euphoric levels when they call tops as they did in certain instances in the past, which I thought was very interesting. So they're, they're basically saying there's more room to run. And this is a survey of, uh, 249 managers that manager control about, uh, 740 billion in AUM. 
And the key takeaways were, as I said, bullish but not euphoric. And what Michael Hartnett said was, we stay irrationally bullish risk assets until peak positioning and peak liquidity incite a spike in global bond yields and the big short opportunity. Uh, you know, that's a mouthful. I think uh, he's threading the needle here. Uh, but, I, you know, we, we've been bullish intermediate term for the year for 2020. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how that plays out with uh, presidential incumbent election years uh, later in this video cast, which I think you'll find very interesting. So, of course, institutional managers chase the index. 32% are overweight now, up from 12% underweight in August. Huge change, biggest increase since August of 2011. And if you remember, uh, that was a sustainable rally out of that uh, euro crisis period. The, this is the highest equity allocation in 17 months, but it remains below the net 50% overweight level, which is consistent with prior market tops. So they're at net 32, net 50 would be the, uh, their level for uh, consistent with uh, previous tops. As far as the yield curve, these managers said 51% expect the yield curve to steepen. That's good for financials. This is down from two months ago. Uh, growth in profits, expectations jumped 14 percentage points from December before phase one deal to 27% now expecting corporate profits to improve over the next year. That's good news. And half C global growth improving in the coming year. That's the highest rate since February 2018. And that was right after the January correction. As far as inflation, more people are seeing inflation, 56%, highest since November 18. And this is the interesting thing I talked about as it relates to earnings. Uh, the U.S. dollar, a net 53% think the U.S. dollar is overvalued. This is the second highest recording since 2002. Here's what happened the last time. So here's 2002, the last time that this survey had this many people saying that the dollar was overvalued, they were right. Because what happened here was the dollar absolutely went in a downtrend. Now, this is too small a sample to say, okay, 100% chance the dollar is gonna go down. But it's worth noting, because if, if anything in that range, even if we came down, five, if, if we just came down year on year, we got a little bit weaker than last year, the impact on S&P earnings would be material as, um, I think 40 to 50% uh, is estimated revenues to come from abroad for S&P 500 companies. So that would be a big boon to S&P 500. And it's a tailwind that no one's really looking at in the context of earnings power. Cash levels remained at 4.2% for the third consecutive month, highest level since March of 2012. If you remember, 13 to 15 were big rally years. Commodities allocation spiked up from 4% uh, to a net 10% overweight. That's the highest since March 2012. And the biggest tail risk that managers are afraid of are the presidential election, 29%, 22% the trade war with China, I guess, resurfacing, and 20% the bond bubble popping. Um, going back to the core article, so that gives you some sense of the dollar and we covered that. So the next thing, uh, Jurian Timmer of Fidelity also put out a chart implying a weakening dollar was possible, possibly in the cards for this year, which would help earnings. 
and he said, provided the Fed continues to add reserves to the banking system, and this shows uh, banking reserves against the S&P, and you can take a look at that. So the second factor we said was the second piece to the puzzle for 2020 earnings is the increased guidance. So negative guidance is better than average. As of last Friday, 60% of S&P companies reported negative guidance versus the five-year average of 70%. That sample size was too small. It got better this week, so it was seven out of 12. Uh, let's pull that up here. Yeah, here it is. So percent of companies issuing guidance, this went down. So it's now only 58% compared to the average of 70%. Seven out of 12 gave negative guidance. So guidance percentages are creeping up. That is a good thing. We need improved guidance. Third key to the puzzle is Boeing. So when I wrote this article, I said Boeing CEO threw in the kitchen sink, lowering any expectation that the 737 MAX will be airborne until summertime. Here's why this is so important. This is key, guy, uh, guys and gals. Despite Boeing's 2020 EPS estimate coming down $5.77 in the past 60 days, the S&P 500 estimates have held strong at 9.5% earnings growth. So we got crushed on one of the biggest components and still we're near double-digit earnings growth. That shows you how strong earnings are, are going to be after a year of flat earnings growth, three consecutive quarters of negative earnings growth in 2019, we're now jumping to close to double digit despite this huge black swan uh, uh, impact. Now, listen to this. If not for this Boeing debacle, the S&P 500 would have 13.24% earnings growth for 2020, which is greater than the 11% in change growth that we had from 2016 to 2017 when the S&P rallied over 37% in about 14, 15 months from Q4-16 to Q1-18, discounting that earnings growth. So, um, you know, we're close to 11% with 9.5. If Boeing gets back on track, that backlog comes back overnight. In a duopoly situation, the minute that plane gets off the ground, you're going to see those earnings just crank right back up. And we could go from a situation where the back end of 2020 earnings just jumps due to Boeing. And hopefully we'll get some tailwind from other companies now with some more confidence on, on phase one. Um, yeah, the corona is certainly a black swan headache, but as we went through the data uh, from all these other situations, uh, the data helps clarify that, you know, uh, this will probably work out a lot better than the market's fearing right now. Next, um, Ryan Dietrich of LPL put out an interesting chart about the seasonality of the S&P 500 in a presidential incumbent election year. So the implication of what he, so basically he took the average of every instance since 1950 and what he came up with, uh, this from LPL and facts set together, it is that on average, the market continues to rally. You know, we've had this strong rally in January. That would be in line it, in, in, the past average, it continues into early February for a week or two. And then you just have this sideways volatile chop all the way until summer. 
uh, until you get the backhand, backend tailwind when you get the massive, massive growth uh, for the back half. And what's so interesting, I look at these charts with a grain of salt about, you know, quote, average seasonality, but this year it's kind of interesting because we did get this huge rally and maybe there's a little maybe there's a little more juice until mid-february and then you know you got to consolidate all the gains maybe guidance will be so so uh but boy if that if that back half if market starts to discount those those earnings coming back in this is totally within the realm of possibility getting this strong back half to supplement the gains that will uh, lock in here in january and early february so this might be an interesting roadmap. We'll see. Uh, do, 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 do. Okay, we also went through the BAML survey saying we're not quite euphoric yet, so this, this looks more realistic as well. And now we're going to shift gears to the Fed. My, uh, Not my favorites, maybe my second favorite subject. So as everyone now knows, and we were talking about in August when the liquidity started, but they've put in over $400 billion of liquidity since August. My concern here going into the Fed meeting this week is that they start to talk it down. And we've seen a couple of articles and a few of the governors uh, worried about asset prices, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, you know, that they come out with the rhetoric like, hey, we ramped up liquidity because of the, quote, cash crunch at the end of the year. Now there's no cash crunch. We're going to start to pull back in mid-February. That type of rhetoric would set the table for this type of seasonality. So if they if they want to pull back, that's fine. But we'll just have this sideways grind until the summer when the earnings kicks back up and it can justify a higher multiple. But if they keep their foot on the pedal, um, you know maybe this will be too conservative. We'll we'll see. Uh, my sense is after December of 2018. Anything's possible. You know what they did in October and December of 2018 was uh, unbe unbelievably unnecessary. Uh, so I wouldn't put anything past them. But they've been on track since then, and my uh, sense is that they'll follow through. And here's why it's in their interest to do that. First off. They've only unwound, so basically the Fed tightened for two straight years, 2017 and 18, eight some odd raises in a row, and, but they also did quantitative tightening of $785 billion. Now, the economy was so strong that they had to suck almost a trillion dollars out of liquidity, raise rates like a rocket ship, and they still, it took them two years to, to choke the economy off, and finally they got their wish to have negative growth, three quarters of negative growth in 2019. Congratulations, you get the booby prize. Uh, and uh, nearly tanked everything in, in uh, December of 2018. So just like it took them two years to choke the hell out of the economy, uh, they only started reversing course in earnest in August uh, over the summer. We got three cuts and we got $400 billion of uh, additional liquidity. It takes a little time to get that through the system and now with the phase one deal. So there may be a lagged effect before you really start to see it in the economic numbers. Saw some positive PMIs starting to turn. Uh, things are looking better. Financial stress index uh, is down at, uh, I think, its lowest levels in... Uh, I'll have to look that up, but it's it's been it's a long time. Uh, Jennifer Ablin, the U.S. markets editor at the Financial Times, put it out on Twitter, so you can follow her. And so 
if they start tapering too early, what's going to happen is what Chair Powell mentioned in his December meeting, which was of utmost importance what and wasn't covered because everyone was afraid of the uh, tariff day on December 15th, and his meeting was a few days before, so everyone was focused on tariffs. They weren't focused on the Fed meeting as much. But he basically made the case that he wants to run things hot. He wants to add liquidity for the most important reason is to create more jobs. So all those people who are no longer counted in the labor force, um, millions who have who are at the margins, who have not yet benefited from the recovery, he wants to run the economy hot. He wants to run wages a little hot to suck them back into the workforce and bring this labor force participation rate, which is just down at abysmal levels in 2005 it hit lows um, and it's been trending up since uh, you know 2016 it's been slowly trending up so 3.5 percent unemployment rate historic unemployment rate is great but it would be much more substantial if we got the labor force participation rate back up to at least 65 percent which in order to do if if they start tapering back on this liquidity at any point before they unwind quantitative tightening. So they've got another $385 billion to go. Uh, there's no way he's going to create a couple, two, three million more jobs and get this labor force participation rate up to 65 and help all those people that were left behind in the last crisis. So if he really wants to help those people, keep your foot on the gas until either one, you see the labor force participation rate at 65 plus and you've created a couple million more jobs, or two, you know, sustainable inflation, persistent between two and a half to 2.8% inflation uh, for six months, then then maybe you got to pull it back even if you don't get to 65. But if you really want to help all of these people that have just been dumped out, and, you know, some people say, well, everyone's retiring, they're old. That's nonsense. People don't retire at 56. They get pushed out of middle management jobs. And that's what happened during the crisis. And now you've got 85 million, million millennials, which are even bigger than the 80 million boomers. So there are plenty of people sitting on the sidelines that could get us up to 65. They just need the incentives and employers need the incentives to invest and train them because they can't find the labor that they need because the economy is running hot. So they got to pay up. They got to invest in training and they got to hire those people that maybe they have a couple uh, um, um, checkered things on their past resume that employers will have to overlook and give them a second shot. And that's just good for the whole economy, good for people's self-worth, good for everything. So run it hot, get these people back in. If it runs too hot, you can pull back. You guys know how to do it. You did it in 2017 and 18 and your pros, you can choke off growth if you want to. So don't be afraid, crank this thing up and get, get these people back in the labor force. If, if, uh, if you're committed to doing what you said in December, which I, I believe he earnestly is, it seems like a passion for him. So that would be very constructive. Uh, but we'll get, we're going to find out next week. We're going to see if uh, if he persists in maintaining the liquidity. I, I think a rate cuts out of the question, so he's got to keep the liquidity going. Or if the forgotten men and women uh, remain in the shadows, and I hope that's not the case. So we're going to find out. Uh, as far as the shorter term stuff, we had the sentiment uh, uh, shot up this week to 45. Uh, historically, that's not too extreme, but it's up there. So of note, you know, we know all the short term stuff is overbought. Fear and greed um, came in a little bit. So that was inconsistent with the bullish sentiment. 
And lastly, the National Association of Active Investment Managers, they were up to 94% equity exposure, which is high. But again, these things can stay pinned coming out of these um, deep troughs. You can stay pinned here for a while, and we've been pinned here for just a little while, so that can persist. So our general theme for this week is similar to the last couple of weeks. We're bullish for 2020, intermediate term. We know it's uh, short term, a little bit overbought. We've added a few shorts in the last week or, or two, as we've noted, and we had trimmed a number of the stocks that ran huge off the August, September lows and reallocated to those some of those sectors and stocks that haven't participated, uh, including energy. So we had a monster bounce in December off the uh, October and November lows. We've given some of that back and we're reloading. So uh, we definitely want to participate in this. We're, um, uh, uh, you know, with the rig countdown, 60 some odd percent since the October 14 highs and the supply demand equation, the economy picking up. Yeah, you got this noise about Corona and yes, it will have an impact in China. Uh, but I think I'm balanced when you've got earnings power uh, since the great financial crisis into 2020 up 55 some odd percent for the sector. Uh, excuse me. Now it's actually more than that. All right. 57 percent. And the price is about the same as it was during the great financial crisis for the basket of stocks. There, there's an opportunity there in, in my view. So that's uh, opinion, but I lay out my reasoning and I'll show you where you can find that. Um, the shorts that we have aren't because we're necessarily bearish. They're special situations that we believe will work even in a sideways market. Like Ryan pointed out, sideways chop, you'll get your opportunities in these type of situations or... Uh, even if the market persists higher and in the event of a pullback, they'll outperform on the downside is our view. Uh, next thing we like to cover on a weekly basis is we do sector earnings. We did the top 30 weights of the NASDAQ uh, QQQ this week. And in the last 60 days, the earnings estimates were revised up 13 basis points. So that's uh, constructive. And we just covered today, we put this out. This is the sector that had a horrible week, had another upward revision in earnings expectations for 2020. Energy, which was the worst in 2019, is projected to have the highest earnings growth in 2020. They've taken it up from 21%, 21.4% earnings growth a few weeks ago to now 25.5% earnings growth is expected for the energy sector in 2020. That is huge. Price is not yet reflecting that. So uh, those divergences have a uh, serendipitous uh, tendency to resolve themselves to the upside. And S&P earnings held in strong above 177 bucks. Uh, and I said, as I said, guidance improved. And finally, if you're interested in looking into our energy thesis, just go to this sidebar on the site, which you can find all the way down here, and type in uh, J. Paul Getty stock market and sentiment results. And what you'll find is not only the short thesis of why we're interested in the exploration and production subsector, why we're interested, and you'll find all of our sequence of articles from October when we initiated the position 
uh, and then the follow-up articles, and the article in the Financial Times in December, which just lays it out. Uh, while everyone's dumping them, billionaires are going into the sector, and you'll see a list of a dozen that uh, Jennifer outlined in, in her article. So uh, that's basically it for the week. I want to thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Might be a day later because um, I have the Yahoo on Friday, but same place, uh, give or take the same time. And if you liked this and you're watching on YouTube, click subscribe and we'll see you back here next week. Have a good one.